Um, All right. Good afternoon. Hello, everyone. Uh, We are uh, here again in Chris's office at Rome Church of Christ, and uh, we are going to uh, consider another one of John Clayton's lessons uh, this afternoon. We are on number 27, I believe, out of 36. And so we are a pretty good way through them. Um, it would be difficult to go back and even you know recount the, the things that we have talked about. He has covered a whole world of information that I think most of us uh, have not encountered before. And uh, I hope that you are finding these lessons um, informative and uh, inspiring and uh, maybe have helped uh, equip you in a way that you weren't equipped before to deal with individuals um, as you discuss um, this idea of does God exist? There are many people that think he doesn't and that the Bible is uh, a book of fairy tales, a collection of stories um, with no common thread or no no purpose other than uh, to uh, share that with the world and, and let people enjoy those stories. Um, we know that it's much more than that. And what John uh, Clayton is doing for us is trying to give us what they call external evidence. There's internal evidence of the fact that the Bible is what it says it is. And then there's external uh, evidence. And he is trying his best uh, not to use internal evidence. From time to time, he'll refer to the Bible uh, and what it says to show that science backs it up. Uh, But for the most part, he is trying to give us uh, scientific information, information uh, from the world around us that help us to believe and acknowledge and realize that the science, that science and the Bible um, have to support one another. And as he says, if if science doesn't support the Bible or Bible doesn't support the science, you've either got bad science or you've got bad theology. Um, One of the two, or it could could be both um, if if that's an option as well. So what he's going to talk to us today about is something that he started uh, last week and maybe even the week before. Uh, talking about um, fossil evidence last week, and this week in particular, he's going to talk uh, specifically about the flood and what um, geology and uh, the the science that we can understand about the type of rocks and the rock formations uh, around us, how that supports the notion um, of the flood of Noah. So let's begin. Welcome to the Does God Exist video series, program number 27, The Flood of Noah, Fact and Myth. We're taking a little side trip in our discussion about evolution and fossils to talk a little bit about the flood. And part of that is because there has been some misuse of the flood of Noah. There's been some skepticism about the flood of Noah. We finished our last presentation by talking about the fact that evolution is based upon uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the belief or the suggestion that no process has ever happened in the past that is not operational today. So that everything we see in the natural world historically is interpreted of what is going on now. We pointed out that's not always true, that uh, things like the asteroid collision that produced the extinction of the dinosaurs, at least in the belief of most scientists, is not uniformitarian in nature. That's not something we use in interpreting a rock strata that we see today or that is instrumental in producing rock strata today. The flood, however, would be something different. 
And may I remind you that our discussion of evolution has primarily rotated around the point that science and faith support each other. They reinforce each other. They exist in a symbiotic relationship, each mutually beneficial to the other. So the question of the flood becomes an issue because the question of the validity of the Bible becomes an issue. Is that just a silly ancient story that has no f credible roots to it? It is found in many of the writings besides the Bible. We'll talk about that momentarily. But let's take a, a, a little time here to talk about the flood and about some of its misuses and some of the things that have been said about the flood that I don't think people should use, and then we'll talk about what we can do to put things together. The first thing I'd like to suggest to you is that there are mechanisms for the flood. The Bible indicates a couple of things about how the flood was produced. In Genesis 7 and verse 11, it says that the fountains of the great deep broke, were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. You go back and you look at the Hebrew words there and there's nothing too astounding. But we do know that there are things that might fit the description given. One possible contributory would be the fact that we have sustained magnetic reversals in our history. The sun's magnetic field flips back and forth in a roughly even cycle. The Earth's magnetic field also is believed to flip back and forth. See, our magnetic field is important to us. We talked about that when we were in the lesson on design. It shields us from radiation coming from outer space. So when you look at the Earth and you see its north and its south pole, you know that the field protects us. Particles that would strike the Earth are deflected away from us by the Earth's magnetic field. So you have sort of a tug of war going on. Gravity is pulling the particles down. The magnetic field is pushing the charged particles away. And those particles reside in belts called the Van Allen radiation belts. And you can see in this visual that those belts are at different levels. The reason for that is the particles have different weights. Hydrogen atoms, uh, charged hydrogen atoms called ions, would be further out because they have less mass. Heavier particles would be in belts closer to the Earth. The question is, have these belts always stayed the same? And the answer is no. There have been times when the magnetic field has flipped. If I took you to Lake Michigan and you were to look at the sand around Lake Michigan, there are little black particles in the sand. They're particles of magnetite, naturally magnetic rock. And as they settle in the ocean, they line up pointing to magnetic north. Deep down in the rock layers below you, they point south. So the Earth's magnetic field has flipped back and forth. If the field contains charged particles like hydrogen, and if you were to add massive amounts of hydrogen to an oxygen-rich atmosphere, hydrogen plus oxygen produces water. Not enough water to flood the whole Earth, but water. So there is a process. There have been studies done of the Mediterranean that have been interesting. We now know the Atlantic Ocean has invaded the Mediterranean area. When you look in the Mediterranean, what you find is it's an old desert. The Glomar Challenger has done dredgings in the Mediterranean Ocean. And deep down in the bottom of that ocean, there are desert deposits, evaporite deposits, desert flora and fauna. There is a fault which goes through the Straits of Gibraltar and the downthrown side is to the right as you're looking at this picture. It, there is a waterfall gouge, a place where water coming over has scooped out the rock, the material at the base of the falls that is huge at the bottom of that fault. So it appears that at one time the Atlantic Ocean may have plowed into the Mediterranean. And interestingly enough, as that waterfall gouge is produced, as the Atlantic Ocean comes charging through those straits, its direction would put it in air rack. Now, these are mechanisms that can be proposed. They are ways of saying, yes, there could have been massive flooding. 
Sometimes those things would be local. Both of the things we have talked about here are in different categories. The magnetic reversal thing would be global. The Mediterranean thing would be local. Many people have proposed that there was a canopy surrounding the Earth and that that canopy made the Earth a tropical paradise and that when the canopy collapsed, this caused the flood. Let me show you very quickly the, the problem with that. Sunlight strikes the Earth at an angle. As you look at this globe, you'll notice that it is tilted, and the actual angle of tilt is 23 and a half degrees. That means that as the Earth rotates around the Sun, and as the Earth spins on its axis, that this angle of strike of the Sun changes. So, for instance, if the sun is right overhead at the equator, it will strike at right angles. But the rays further north and further south will strike at a lower angle. That means where it strikes head-on, it will be very hot. At the poles, where the angle is very low, it will be very cold. Our climate is caused not by a canopy, not by atmospheric conditions. You can get things like the greenhouse effect that can make small changes, but that's not the primary cause of the difference in climates. So tropical airs lying between 23 and a half degrees north and south are places where the sun is striking more directly. Polar areas at either the north or the south is where the sun is striking at a lower angle. So the polar areas would never be a tropical paradise. And the changes that are found there, the evidence that it was warmer at one time, are much more likely to be due to the continents moving than anything that has to do with the atmosphere. Now, on the other side of the picture, we see cultural records that suggest that the flood did occur. This is a placemat in a Mexican restaurant. And that may sound strange for me to be using this in this discussion, but it was a very slow Mexican restaurant, and I was sitting there reading the placement, waiting for my dinner. And in the corner, there was a, a box that had labeled on the placemat, Son of Waters. So I looked it up. And what I found was that this calendar had a section on it which said that there was a time when the gods became displaced with mortal man and decided to send a great flood, which no mortal could survive. But the verdict seemed too harsh to... Does it sound familiar? As you read through that thing, it has an incredible resemblance to Noah's flood. And as a matter of fact, every culture on the earth has a flood account. It is always embellished with local situations. In Hawaii, there's a giant canoe. In Alaska, there's a giant raft, and there's a problem between the polar bears and the seals. I was in the Northwest one time speaking at an Indian reservation, and there was a, a flood pole that I was introduced to, which had a record in their mythology of an ancient flood. Now, you have two possibilities here. Either the event really did occur, and every person on the earth is a descendant of those who survived it, or one whale of a good fairy tale got around. And I think the fairy tale idea is very difficult to substantiate because these cultures were not interactive for the most part. And it tends to support the fact that there, in fact, was a historical event. Now, there have been other scientific studies that are interesting. A man by the name of Emiliani in the University of Miami years ago was doing studies of salinity in the Gulf of Mexico and found that there was a radical change in the Gulf of Mexico from the normal salinity of ocean water, which is 35 parts per thousand, to a very, very low salinity, indicated by massive amounts of fresh water. Could this be a flood? Yes, it could also be melting of glaciers or any number of other causes. But there is evidence that the flood did occur. Now, at this point, the, the question becomes more a question of can the flood be used to explain what many people try to use it to explain. And let me take an example that I'm very familiar with, the Grand Canyon. Was the Grand Canyon produced by the flood of Noah? There are creationists who will tell you that the flood laid down the rocks, and then when the waters abated, when the waters flowed off, it carved the canyon. 
Let me show you the difficulty with that. There are two kinds of sedimentary rocks. Chemical precipitates are one kind. Do you ever see a jar of jelly left on a cellar shelf too long? Or maybe a jar of maple syrup that was forgotten about. What's going on inside the jelly or the maple syrup? Crystals. Crystals. You may have done a crystal growing lab at home or maybe in a chemistry class. If somebody sat there and stirred the maple syrup, the crystals would never form. It has to be very quiet conditions over a long period of time. What this visual shows you is the way we understand today that calcium carbonate is produced, better known as limestone. This is a chemically precipitated rock, not something that would be produced by a flood. Now, there are also rocks called clastic rocks. Clastic rocks are rocks produced by particles being carried and then cemented together. So when mud is cemented together, it makes a clastic rock called shale. When sand is carried and cemented together, it makes a rock called sandstone. When gravel is carried and cemented together, it makes a rock called conglomerate. Or if the particles are angular in shape, we call it a breccia. These are clastic rocks. Now, let me ask you something. When somebody is flooded, what are they doing when they clean it up? Are they chiseling limestone off the piano? Or are they scraping mud out of the living room? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? All right, let's, let's take a hike down the Grand Canyon and let's see if we can find what evidence there is that the Grand Canyon was not produced by the flood of Noah. First of all, I want to emphasize that the present-day canyon has had different volumes of water flowing through it. In dry seasons, it was very, very small. There could be very rapid flowing of water. And the explanation of how big rocks, like the ones you see here at the bottom of the canyon, could have been carried were certainly not by the stream that you see in the background, which is the Colorado River. There have been times when massive amounts of water have gone through the canyon, even before the dams that man has been put on the canyon. So as we start down the canyon, we're going to go down the Kaibab Trail. The Kaibab Trail is a beautiful walk. It's uh, some seven miles. And you go over the lip of the canyon, and the very first rock you come into is something called the Kaibab Limestone. This is a chemically precipitated rock, never produced by a flood. Embedded in the rock are geodes. You'll notice one here. Quartz crystals. This one's about 8, 10 inches in diameter. Sometimes the crystals are clearer than they are here. Here they've got other minerals in them, and of course that's where your precious stones come from. But this particular area, indicated by the arrow, is again something produced just like rock candy or maple syrup, crystals, in very quiet conditions over a long period of time. As you go on down past the Kaibab Trail, the next rock you come in contact with is something called the Coconino Sandstone. Now, this is a very different kind of rock. It's a sandstone, but I want you to notice the angle between the beds here. It has a particular angle, an angle that is indicative of being a sand dune. All right, we're taking you to Michigan now. You're at a place called Tower Hill, just a few miles from my house. And you'll notice that the sand dune has a particular angle with the lake that you see in the background. That angle is basically the same angle as the one that you see in this cross-section in the Coconino. And by the way, you might notice my wife running down the hill on the lower left-hand corner, leaving tracks. On the back of this Coconino sandstone, there are tracks of an animal that sink deep into the sand. Now, uh, it should be obvious here that if you're underwater, you don't sink deep into the sand. So it is very strong indication that this, in fact, was a sand dune. On top of that, if you looked at the sand here with a microscope, you would see the sand grains are frosted because they have banged into each other and scratched each other as the wind blew them around. Underwater, that doesn't happen because the water prevents such high-velocity collisions. I don't see how there can be any other conclusion 
but that the Coconino Sandstone is a sand dune, a windblown deposit from a very different time, not something produced by a flood. Let's do one more thing. Let's go fossil hunting. You see the platform over on the top right-hand side of the picture. Let's go over there. Here are some fossils. The penny is there so you can tell how big the fossils are. Notice these fossils. They're all the same. It's an animal called Eospirifer. And every single animal there is the same animal. It's not a mixture of animals. All right, we stand up. The fossils you just saw are in the upper left-hand corner. We're going down in the bottom right-hand part of the picture to a lower area, a thousand feet deeper in the canyon. And here are the fossils. They're not the same, are they? This is called a Lenothyrus, and they're all the same animal. Is that what a flood would do? Would a flood put one animal at one place and a different animal at a different place, or would it make complete sausage of the material? Well, you've seen the result, the devastation of floods. The Grand Canyon was not produced by the flood. Now, some of you say, well, yeah, but those rocks are different in size. No, they're not. Here are the two fossils. Eospirifer on the left, Alenothyrus on the right. They're the same size. They're the same weight. They're the same density. But they're different. There has been some evolution here. There has been some change in the animal. They're both brachiopods. But they're not what you would call a flood deposit. Now, another challenge that I'd like to address, people say, well, yeah, but, but you don't know that the canyon has always been that way. Look at Mount St. Helens. Okay, let's go to Mount St. Helens. Been there a number of times. Mount St. Helens is a volcano. In 1980, the volcano erupted. And we all know the devastation that followed. Between 1980 and 2010, so that's 30 years, a canyon 1,200 feet deep was carved on the side of Mount St. Helens. The devastation has been slow to recover. And it's an amazing set of pictures if you look at the violence that took place. You can see the way in which the rocks were sorted, finer at the top, coarser at the bottom. But how could this massive canyon have been produced in 30 years? And the answer is that this is not limestone. This is volcanic ash, very soft rock, a very soluble rock. Making a comparison between limestone that we build our houses with and volcanic ash is like comparing hot butter and stainless steel. You cannot use Mount St. Helens as a model of the Grand Canyon. Now, I want to emphasize a couple of things here. The flood happened. That's not the issue. The issue is, did the flood cause the fossil record that we looked at in the previous video? And the answer is no. What I have been showing you is material that is roughly seventh grade earth science material. The pictures are from things I have used in my earth science class. Any seventh grader knows about petrology, knows about the different kinds of rocks, knows something about Mount St. Helens and that it's a volcano, and knows about mudslides and volcanic ash, knows about limestone and the fact that limestone gets harder with time, so it's a wonderful building stone, knows all of the stuff about it. Then the preacher gets up on Sunday morning and says the Grand Canyon was produced by the flood of Noah. What does that say to the child? And if the preacher's wrong on that, how do I know he's right about anything else? My concern is that we need to provide young people with good, solid evidence. We need to let them think and have a factual basis, but we need to learn and grow. And I'm still learning and I'm still growing. And if you have seen a mistake in these presentations, I hope you'll let me know about it. I will correct it. But it's important in this process to understand that there are other questions that have to be answered. Like, for instance, how do you get isolated animal populations in places like Australia? I had a presentation I heard a creationist make one time at a university where he was trying to explain how the platypus got to Australia. And his explanation was that Noah sailed over to Australia, got at his clipboard and said, okay, koala bears, kangaroos, platypuses, out! 
and then sailed over to Mount Ararat. And the students are just rolling their eyes. Of course. What's interesting is that, as we will see later, there is evidence that continents were all connected at one time. We have found kangaroo fossils in South America. So there are things like land bridges that could explain the kinds of changes that have taken place. But as you look at these pictures, you have to understand that those are simply explanations that say, yes, there are ways in which this could occur. And the ultimate question that comes down to us is, was the flood local or global? Did it cover the whole earth? Or was it talking about the earth known to man at the time? I wasn't there. I would point out to you that there are times when the Bible uses global language for something that was clearly local in nature. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, Luke 2 and verse 1. Is it your understanding that uh, Caesar sent tax collectors to the Incas? <laughs> if he did, I bet they didn't come back. The, the point is, I think we understand it was the, the Roman world. In Colossians, the first chapter, verse 23, Paul says, The gospel of Christ has been preached to every creature under heaven. So was he talking about the 1,200 inhabited islands of the South Pacific? Was he talking about the Anastasi at the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Or was he talking about the known world? I suggest to you that in the process of Genesis 6 through 8, the word that is used, the indication that is used is that it was the known world. And it's important to understand as we look at this discussion that the facts are what we're concerned about here. The flood did happen. All humans on earth were affected by the flood. And the message of the flood is predominantly a spiritual message. Whether an uninhabited continent was flooded or not is not the issue in this discussion. I don't know whether the flood was local or global. I don't have that kind of knowledge. The Bible language does not make it that clear. What is clear is that the flood occurred and that there is no conflict between the evidence and what the Bible has to say. So in our next presentation, let's take a look at what the Bible does say about the history of the earth. Are we back? Yes, we'll be back. I think we're back. Okay, some interesting uh, geological uh, evidence there uh, for us as we consider uh, Noah and the flood. Um, I felt like he was getting ready to say that uh, it appears that it was more local than anything, but the, it, it seems like he has also presented some evidence um, over here in the United States, uh, which isn't local to uh, the Middle East, that there are some uh, relics or remnants. And maybe he wasn't saying that. Maybe I was making that inference uh, of a, a worldwide flood uh, about seashells being in Michigan and, and things of that nature. Um, everybody ends up saying uh, he doesn't he, he can't conclusively uh, draw a conclusion on that, and maybe he will say more on that later in, in a future episode. Um, the considerable evidence, though, that a flood did take place. Uh, I was interested to see his list of all those cultures, and I've heard that there are other cultures that, that have uh, mentioned in their writings about, uh, about, flood, about a flood, a great flood, but did you, did you catch how many? of those cultures did. And I don't know if that is every uh, known culture uh, that exists either today or in, in some uh, point in history, um, but they apparently are all the ones that we have where they are mentioned and they are, it's all of them. It is all of them. And so uh, the flood, while many have 
said that the Bible um, made that part up, uh, along with a bunch of other uh, God-inspired actions. Um, other cultures have, have confirmed in their writings that that's at least a part of their uh, history, <clears throat> a part of their um, uh, culture that this, this, this event did did take place. Did you want to say anything? Yeah, it just would lend credence to the idea that it was a global flood, which I think in my mind is pretty well settled. I think scripture settles that it was a global flood. Um, eight souls were saved. It's first Peter three twenty one. If there had been a spot for someone to run for safety, yeah. they would have ran to that place. Yeah. Uh, and he did say about something about the Incas. And if, if it had not been a global flood, then the other part, the other side of the world, uh, maybe even in in Asia somewhere um, would have would have had they had human beings um, I'm assuming sure. there at that time and so um, you know the the global aspect of it uh, makes more sense uh, to me if the fountains of the deep are going to burst open and the heavens are going to open and and it's going to flood that much um, then uh, to me it, it's going it makes sense for it to be everything. And it's doesn't it say it killed off all the animals uh, as well, uh, and that's why they had animals in the in the ark. And so, if it wasn't global, then those animals, if they existed at the time, which I assume they did, uh, would have not been threatened. As I said, uh, next week he's going to talk about um, the age of things, and he's going to start uh, getting into. Uh, his understanding of how old um, things are, how old uh, the world is. And I know that we have heard various uh, opinions and theories uh, about that. Uh, but what he's going to do is approach that over the next two lessons, I believe, um, in a little bit different way than than I had ever uh, heard it. And uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting argument, and uh, I think it's plausible. I don't know that I buy it 100 percent, but uh, it's it's certainly um, eye opening to look at it another another way. That's all I have to say uh, about about the uh, video that we just watched, as I do from time to time. Um, I bring up other issues uh, that are current to us and that develop uh, during the week. Uh, and one that has come to uh, light recently. Um, is the fact that uh, we now have a, a Catholic as our president. Um, he's our second Catholic as president, as uh, most of you all know. Um, John F. Kennedy was the first, and uh, I can remember, um, especially, I don't know that my parents were so upset about it, but I think my wife's uh, parents uh, were concerned uh, that uh, having a Catholic in the White House was going to alter our country in some some severe way and severe manner. Um, I don't think that occurred. Um, and and I have to say, and I think I've said it here before, uh, that if if there is a um, a religious group that still has considerable influence on policies and practices that we might call more biblically uh, supported or conservatively uh, fashioned, um, it would be the Catholic Church. Um, I do, do know the Catholic Church is undergoing um, a reduction in numbers, uh, as are all institutions, I believe, uh, religious and, and otherwise, but um, they still remain uh, a force in the world. and. Um, what their uh, earthly uh, leader, uh, the Pope, says uh, still carries considerable weight with the body uh, as a whole. Apparently, however, there are some beliefs that the uh, Catholic Church has had for a long time that today fewer and fewer people are beginning to. Um, respect and buy into and support and advocate for. One of those uh, is, is abortion. 
um, it would be nice if one of the Ten Commandments or the Eleventh Commandment uh, would have said, thou shalt not abort children, mm. abort babies. That would have been clear, direct, pointed, and um, irrefutable as far as at least one of the uh, commandments of the old law. Um, it doesn't say that. It does say, thou shalt not uh, commit murder. And so the question is, is abortion committing murder? Is there anything um, immoral about abortion? Um, I was looking up, I remembered that, that uh, Hillary Clinton at one point, uh, this was back in 2008, said her belief at that time, I think she has evolved as some others have evolved on um, several issues, <clears throat> religious issues nowadays. She said abortion should be safe. Well, the question is, for whom, right. I guess you might say, and I never thought of it in that until I just wrote this down a few minutes ago. Safe, legal, and rare. And by rare, I mean rare. And I thought, well, okay, has anyone asked her why or anybody else who says this? I'm not, not picking on Hillary. Um, why? It should be rare. Is it kin to excising a tumor, cutting out an organ in your body that is causing you discomfort or pain or uh, problems in some other way? Um, if it's that, then why should it be rare? It should be no more rare than any other operation where a doctor removes something from your body uh, that you don't want there. And what, what it gets into is even those who believe that abortion is more than just excising a tumor, that it is uh, ending a life in the womb, will say, we're against all abortion, all abortion, except in the case of rape or incest. And I ask myself, well, is it murder? Is it ending the baby's life or is it not? Why should the conditions of how the individual got pregnant in the first place have any impact on the decision whether or not to end a life. If that is the reason that you are saying that it should not happen, how the pregnancy occurred should have nothing to do with it. In my opinion, maybe I'm crazy. I just try to be consistent in what I believe. There's another factor that is sometimes considered. And it's the health or the life of the mother. Health is a broad term. There can be mental health. There <laughs> can be, you know, social health. There can be uh, any uh, range of definitions of how a woman's health will be affected if she is forced to carry this child to term. Um, most of those refer to that it's going to physically damage her in some way. And then you throw in the uh, issue on top of that, that she might lose her life during the uh, birth process. And that adds more solemnity to it, uh, throws it into another serious category. And at that point, you're saying, okay, life of the mother, life of the baby, you know, how can, how can we make that decision? Um, and I, it's my understanding, and I didn't go back and check these, uh, those data, 
But I think that where the life of the mother is um, at risk or is for sure going to take place is like point zero zero seven infinitesimally small percent of the time. Those conditions that would call that into play are extremely, extremely rare. So to use that as a as a as a foundation for uh, allowing an abortion um, and then opening the door to exceptions, which these other ones um, are exceptions, then um, that's it, it may be stretching the point on that. Um, that said, I would never want to <laughs> have a wife who is pregnant and a doctor tell me there is a really good chance that your wife will die. Um, if I were the mother, I would take that chance. I don't think that I could say, well, you know, I want to live regardless of, you know, what happens to uh, this thing inside of me. So and we don't know for sure. I don't know that any any doctor could ever say for sure. You talk about probability. Um, there are some Bible passages. Uh, we're not going to talk about those. Uh, you can go look those up online or go go check the last uh, sermon that you heard on abortion from the pulpit. Uh, but there are some uh, that suggest that that babies are more than just tissue, more than just a, a tumor of some sort or an organ of some sort. Uh, but they they show that that babies uh, can respond and do respond. The one that comes to mind most often is uh, John uh, leaping in uh, John the Baptist leaping in the womb yeah. of Elizabeth when Mary enters the room pregnant with the Messiah. Now, it says that he did that, um, the spirit, I think, is, was involved there. Um, but that shows that the baby was being able to be influenced by the spirit. Well, that's an interesting point right there, isn't it? You still got the videos of the babies that are being aborted that move away from the tweezers because they've been touched by it and they don't like it. I'll talk about that in a second. Let's see. I better, I better, hot topics, I better get my, better get my watch out here. So, oh, hold, hold on, just a second. Since you brought up the Ten Commandments, sure. The word there in Hebrew is ratzak, right? It's premeditated murder. It's not just, oops, I, I, we were fighting and I pushed you off a cliff and you died. Right. It's I laid in wait with a knife with the intention of killing you, and I went through with the action. That's what he's forbidding in the Ten Commandments. Are there there are um, occurrences when you would accidentally kill someone, and God provides a way of safety while at the same time consequence for those people with the cities of refuge. You can go to this particular city and you can be safe there, but you have to stay there for the rest of your life. If you happen to leave that city, then that person. A relative could come and they could find you in an act of revenge on you for that uh, murder, but. If there is any premeditated murder on the planet at this point, it's 100% abortion. There's just not, there's not a, a way around it. Here's the, uh, and here's what brought it to mind the other day. Um, January 20th or 22nd, I think, is the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, uh, the historic landmark uh, Supreme Court case um, allowing uh, abortion. Um, 60 in the uh, 48 years after Roe v. Wade, uh, in two years, we will celebrate 50 years of abortions. Um, in those 48 years, um, estimates, and we don't have accurate accounts. These are the ones that are reported. Uh, there were many what they call back alley abortions and and uh, some abortion clinics may not may not have early on reported uh, their numbers. But uh, the most accurate number we have of the number of babies that have been aborted in uh, those 48 years is 62 million. How many people died in World War Two? Uh, I'm not sure. I heard I heard the other day we've had 400,000. Uh, die of COVID here yeah. in the United States, and someone said that's more than yeah. World War II. Yeah. So, um, you know, just for perspective, you know, that's one thing. 
the other thing is this. Uh, <laughs> look this up just before it came. 210 countries out of 232 in the world. There are 232 recognized countries. 210 of those have less than 62 million people in their population. It's a small country. 62 million people. Yeah. Not even a small country. That's and, now, country. and that's in the upper, you know, 62 million. There's only 22 countries that have more than 62 million. And so we're talking, you know, what, per, you know, you're in the upper uh, 10% of the nations that exist. So just, just let that number, 62 million abortions um, have taken place. In those in those forty eight years, another thing that um, only eleven million people in the entire state of Ohio. Okay, abortion will be one of those things. Hopefully, not too far into the future, where we look back on our past, and this is one of the things that we are shamed shamed by. You know, and that and that's that's what that's what scares me. Um, and I know there there may be someone uh, listening to us that have that has had an abortion, and um, regardless of of your feelings about that, we as a nation, I believe, will look back. We will find out at some point, I hope, some piece of medical information that will say life begins here. If I were pregnant with a child, regardless of my circumstances or uh, the child's circumstances or whatever, I don't know how I could say, you know, well, I really don't think conception. I really don't think life begins until uh, viability and viability is a term that you hear. Uh, and viability just means to be able to live outside the womb. Well, even a baby cannot live outside the room by itself. If that's what you're talking about with viability, there have been babies that have um, been born way before we thought was the, the term, the time of viability that have lived outside the womb, born prematurely. We've got um, thousands of people right now on ventilators who are being <laughs> forced to live because the ventilator is helping them live. Yep. So are they going to get better? Maybe. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the easiest thing to do is say life begins at conception. Okay. Um, then anything after that, if terminated, ends a life. Um, Chris was talking uh, about um, fetal pain, um, fetal um, fetal pain is one of those uh, fetal heartbeat and fetal pain have been two of the more recent efforts on the part of those who uh, oppose abortion to try to get people to realize that um, this is not just an organ, it's not just a tumor, it is a life. And um, the uh, discussions, if you look up online, discussions about fetal pain uh, are, are pretty graphic, and I'm not going to read those, uh, but they say some of the most uh, graphic descriptions come from those people who have performed abortions. And they will tell you that the uh, fetus responds to pain. Fetal pain is a reason to end abortion. Um, it uh, talks about from the earliest time that the cerebral cortex is formed and, and uh, the baby develops reflexes. And that's as early as four to six weeks. Uh, most of the most of those who want to restrict abortion abortions to the first trimester uh, or 15 weeks, um, there's a whole list of things that have occurred prior to 15 weeks. Um, and and if you, it, it's difficult, it's just really difficult to argue that that is not life. Um, and so fetal, fetal heartbeat is the other one. Uh, if it's not brain waves, which occur very early, then they say, well, what about when the heart begins to beat? And um, Stopping a heart from beating any other time 
is murder. Why isn't it that way in the womb? And then we've got laws that say if you kill a pregnant woman, you get charged for murder twice. Yep. Now, I don't know if that's standard in every state, but it's a, there are many states that are that way. And yet those are some of the states that allow abortions. People have just split their heads and said, I'm going to believe this on this side of my head. And I'm going to believe this on this side of my head. And I'm going to split my mouth the same way. I'm going to say this out of this side and this out of this side. It is amazingly inconsistent and unthinking that that people can, can justify uh, what we're talking uh, about here. Um, the Hyde Amendment is something that people have supported when it was passed. Let's see, when it was passed years ago, that it passed uh, 30, 312 to 93. This was in 1980. And what the Hyde Amendment basically said was you cannot, it's okay to abort, but you cannot use government funds to do so. Um, and at that time, an estimated 300,000 abortions were performed using uh, taxpayer funds. So they said, no, uh, the government should not be in the business of uh, supporting um, abortions. Mm, for whatever reason, I don't think in the amendment it says why. It's just that uh, it should not be a government supported situation. So overwhelmingly, 312 to 93. Um, the law was passed. Well, guess what is in jeopardy? Guess what is part of um, the Democratic platform <coughs> is to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, to repeal the Hyde Amendment. Something else here that I was going to read. The 2020 uh, Democratic platform, and I'm not, I know all Democrats um, are not for abortion. In fact, this entire article uh, is about Democrats who wanted to change the Democratic platform to allow others to be a part of the party and be embraced and yet have opposing views on abortion. They were unsuccessful. The Democratic platform did not change. It says in uh, 2020 Democratic platform, platform, which was released last month, and I don't know what month that was, uh, will be voted on formally approved by Democratic National Committee. Members at next week's virtual convention unequivocally uh, supports abortion rights. Um, now, abortion rights is a, still says abortion. They have euphemized abortion. Um, and a, what a euphemism is, is a milder term for an originally strong term. And what they have done is called it um, choice rather than pro-abortion. They call it abortion rights rather than pro-abortion. Even though they are pro-abortion, they didn't want that terminology used because it sounds like they're for killing babies. Uh, so they have uh, they've moved it into um, health care rights that this is not a um, you know a taking the life of something at someone it's it's uh, affording the one who is pregnant appropriate health care it is now under that umbrella at least in some some uh, realms like the majority of Americans, Democrats believe that every woman should be able to access high-quality reproductive health care services. Words from their platform, including safe and legal abortions. In the draft, Democrats also commit to restoring federal funding for Planned Parenthood, which, despite Planned Parenthood's claims, um earn more from their abortions than they do any of the other services that they say that that uh, compose the bulk of their of their work. Um, that's been disproven. Opposing state laws that limit abortion rights, appealing the Hyde Amendment, 
which bars the use of federal funds to pay for abortion services and codifying Roe v. Wade, a court case that provides a legal defense of abortion. Um, Now, what that last one does, and this is something that I think our new president has said that he is going to support also. He used to be in support of the Hyde Amendment. He's not for it anymore. And once it turned over. And then the other thing is that um, making Roe v. Wade not case law. There there are statutory law and there's case law. And I don't remember in my school law courses if there's a third one, but those are the two ways that things get um, restricted or controlled in our government that there is a law for. It has to be passed by Congress in order to be a a statutory uh, law, or you can have uh, somebody sue someone, take someone to court, and then it makes its way through the process up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules on it the way they did with Roe v. Wade, and it becomes case law. Case law can be changed. Now, the Supreme Court uh, could overturn Roe v. Wade, and that's one of the things that they were afraid of with recent appointments to the Supreme Court. Um, And so what those who are um, who support abortion want to make it law where it would take a constitutional amendment or something uh, to to overturn it. I'm speaking um, without full knowledge of how that works or the impact of that. But what they what they want to do is put it into law, take it out of case law and put it into statutory law so that it would make it extremely more difficult to overturn it. As um, Chris said, I don't know why we haven't come to our senses on this. I don't know why we haven't had debate at the highest levels about this. You know, people talk about how our country was formed based on slavery which that term based on slavery is probably a misnomer as well. Slavery existed. It was horrible. It should have never happened. It's dehumanizing and all of those things. And that's a sin of our nation. There's no doubt about it. But I think abortion abortion tops it um, in major ways. And it's something that I hope at some time we come to our senses that we realize that unless I'm wrong, life begins while that baby's in the womb. All sorts of evidence that backs that up, that we are simply looking the other direction on because We're so focused on the individual rather than the impact that exercising that freedom has on others involved, the baby in the womb, and on society as a whole. So um, it's the last time I probably will spend any amount of time talking about abortion, but I didn't want to talk about sandstone and limestone (laughs) any more than Clayton uh, already had. Because my uh, my information in that area is even less than my information uh, on abortion. But I wanted to bring those points up because they are in the news and they will be in the news. And um, just wanted you to have some some information and some um, thinking on that at this point. That is all I have. If you guys haven't already heard, we are coming back to in-person worship services this Sunday. We'll be starting our worship service at 1030 a.m. Uh, so we'd love to, to have you be a part of that. If uh, if you are still concerned about the virus, we're taking every precaution uh, like we were uh, earlier before we went back to uh, virtual worship services. But if you are still concerned, that makes complete and perfect sense. We get that. Um, we will still be streaming our services online like we uh, like we have been. Uh, for the like the last couple of years now, 
Uh, so take advantage of that opportunity, but uh, we wanted to be able to provide an opportunity for in-person worship services and being able to see each other. And face-to-face -face, uh, is an important way to encourage faith, but also to, to, to challenge each other and to do life together and the things that are so very important uh, in the life of the church. And so we want to get back to that as quickly as possible. So we're looking forward to that. Hopefully we'll get to see you Sunday at 1030. Get your shots. Yes. <laughs> If you need a ride, give us the call at the building. We can uh, we can help uh, find somebody to to take you over there too. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later.